We've been working through the letter to the Galatians. Paul wrote a letter to the Galatians. As you know, they lived in Galatia, uh, which is part of what we would call Turkey today, or Asia Minor. And I'll be reading to you from Galatians 3, verses 15 to 29. This is Paul's letter to the Galatians, 3.15. Hear now the word of God. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, The law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Thus far the reading of God's word. Great Heavenly Father, would your spirit be here to enliven our hearts, to give us strength to understand, and to break down those barriers that prevent us from hearing. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Let me ask you, where is your security? In what do you place your hope? In what are you relying for in your life, for your blessings? Now, those questions may sound a little repetitive. In fact, you may have noticed that with this letter from Paul to the Galatians, we're starting to get a little bit of repetition going. It's easily understood, by the way, because at the beginning of this chapter, chapter 3, he says, Oh, Foolish Galatians. He's anticipating they're a little bit hard-headed, right? So maybe you'll forgive me if I say, oh, foolish Fairviewians, or something like that. But 
I need to be repetitive because Paul needs to be repetitive because in our lives, we repetitively do the wrong thing. We repetitively stray. And we repetitively need to be reminded of the truth, of the promise of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul has these, these verses here, 15 to 29, and here is what he wants you to hear this morning, repetitive or not. He wants you to hear Christ fulfills the promise and the law to free us through faith and to give all who believe his inheritance. Did you catch that? Christ fulfills the promise and the law to free us through faith and to give all who believe his inheritance. There's a theme of family here, right? Inheritance relates to families. When a rich man dies, his inheritance goes to his rich children. When a king dies, his crown goes to his prince or princess, his child. There's a family theme here. And Paul is going to explain how this fits in with Abraham's family and how you fit in with Abraham's family. And he's going to have to work to do that because Abraham was Jewish, and I'm guessing most of you were not Jewish. So I ask you, what is your security? From what do you derive your hope? See, in families, we tend to lead children. It was fun to watch earlier. Mariana was shuffling the children around, leading them by the hand being their guardian for a moment. Not their parent, but their guardian, leading them around, showing them what to do. As parents, we raise our children as guardians, showing them where to go, what to do. My youngest child, my fifth child, turns 21 in less than a month, about three weeks. She'll be of legal age, whatever that is. What will I look for for her to be guided Where will she find her security? In this world, we have lots of opportunities to figure that out. By the way, uh, two weeks ago, she enrolled in a concealed carry class, knowing that she wasn't eligible to get a concealed carry permit until she turned 21, which is in three weeks. I presume she's doing that a little bit for security and maybe just a little bit to be cool. I don't know. But as a father, I know that as she gets older, as I get older, And maybe even as I disappear from her presence, she will need security. She'll need an inheritance to take care of her. Some of that's an inheritance of teaching. And by the way, that's where we come to in our passage here. This passage very cleanly breaks out into four parts. Paul is going to tell us about the promise. That's verses 15 to 18. Then he's going to tell us about the law, 19 to 22. And then he's going to tell us about the imprisonment, the imprisonment. And then he will tell us about the inheritance, 26 to 29. Let's look at this promise. You know, it says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant. Now, you're probably generally familiar with the term covenant. We use that covenant theology language. Paul is not primarily attaching himself to the theological concept of covenant here. In fact, that's what he, precisely what he's not doing when he says, to give a human example. Humans have last will and testaments. They have a contract, if you will, after their death. 
It's called their will. And that's really what he's talking about here. A man-made will, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. In other words, after someone writes a will, signs it in front of a notary or their lawyer or whatever, and they put it away in a safety deposit box, and they pass away, people don't take out the will and say, well, that's a nice will, let's change it here and change it here and change it here. In a human example, we don't do that. No one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. The promise from God to Abraham is the promise. Now, he's, Paul is quite aware that humans are, want to change things, change contracts, and change terms, and so there can be negotiations. But he's giving the human perspective on what God has given with his covenant with Abraham. We call it the Abrahamic covenant. You find it in Genesis 17 and several other places. And what is this covenant about? What is this promise about? You may have noticed as we read this that Paul says promise, singular, and he says promises. That's because God's promise to Abraham included several promises. Primarily, land, he said. I will give you the land flowing with milk and honey. And he also said descendants. Remember, Abraham and Sarah didn't have any children, and he promised him descendants. And the third thing he promised him was a relationship. I will be your God, and you will be my people. So land, descendants, and relationship is what the promise was all about. Now Paul says the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And then Paul makes an important grammatical, syntactical point here. He says he doesn't mean offsprings, plural. He means one offspring. Now, actually, you're probably aware we use the term seed as a collective noun. We might say, um, I I, I planted the seed yesterday. And you don't mean you planted a single seed. You meant you planted a bunch of seeds in a row or two or seven or 20. But he's emphasizing here that offspring could imply a bunch of seeds, but in this case, he's talking about one. And who is that? Who is Christ, it says at the end of verse 16. So he, Abraham is fo- or Paul is focused on Abraham's promise being Christ. In other words, Abraham and Sarah wouldn't simply have a child or even a bunch of children, but that they would eventually have the Christ as one of their descendants. Paul goes on to say, this is what I mean, the law which came 430 years afterwards. You, you sort of imagine in your mind, okay, so there was Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and then there was a time in Egypt when Joseph and his brothers had gone to Egypt, and there was about 400 years there. And so the, then Moses and the people left Egypt, the Exodus, and he received the law, the Ten Commandments. And so you can see that it's something like 430 years from Abraham receiving the promise to Moses receiving the Ten Commandments. And that's what Paul is referring to here by the 430. It might be a little interesting to play with those numbers. We don't have time to do that here. You may want to do that. But notice that the way he's emphasized this is that it is the promising to Abraham, not necessarily a single moment. I already mentioned that Abraham received the promise in several places in Genesis. So we don't know which of these 430 he's referring to, which year. But Abraham lived under a promise, knowing that his descendants would feature Christ, and there would be land and descendants and a relationship with God.
So, it says, the law does not annul a covenant. This is a 430-year covenant that Moses is now receiving what we call the Mosaic Covenant. And so a question, a very good question is, was that law, did that law nullify the previous covenant? And Paul says no. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. It's very logical. If I promise something to my children as an inheritance, and 430 years later, or 30 years later for that matter, say to them, yeah, you can have that if you do this, then it's no longer a promise. I have not lived up to my promise. And God would never do that. And so Paul is saying, of course, the promise is promised, and the law does not nullify it. And that's what those first four verses give us. And then he turns to a discussion of the law, because your question might be the same as the Galatians, which is what Paul is anticipating here. Why then the law, it says in verse 19? Why? What was the purpose? If you're just giving us this stuff, what's the purpose of the law? Well, the law has some very important functions, doesn't it? Think about laws. What do they do? Now, certainly when I was younger, I thought that perhaps speed limit laws were suggestions, right? But what does the speed limit law do? It, it allows us to all live together in harmony, doesn't it? It protects. It informs us that there are risks beyond our control, And it keeps us on the straight and narrow, if you will. And so the notion of the law being helpful in keeping us on the straight and narrow is good information. But that's not really what Paul has so much in view here. He says it was added because of transgressions. It wasn't added just to protect. It was added because of sin. And why is that? Well, if you're sinning all day long and don't know it, the law hasn't helped you to know that you're sinning. And if you're going to do something, it's good to know what you're doing. And by the way, those who sin generally know what they're doing because God reveals to us his word. And so the law informs us of what is in fact sin. Remember in the garden, What was the law that God gave to Adam? He said, don't, uh, you can eat from any tree you want. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I'm sure you recall, what did Adam do? He ate from that tree. You see, the law also does something else. By telling us what is sin, it also reinforces the notion that if you're going to sin, do it. Meaning, if you hate God so much that you will go against him, know it and do it. Because, by the way, your evil nature has taken you there. Now, I'm not saying the law creates sin. Don't misunderstand that at all. It says right here it was given because of sin. But he's saying, if you're going to sin, know it. And, by the way, therefore, the converse would be true. If it is your desire to not sin... Know what sin is and don't do it. It sets up that boundary, but it provides that information. It reveals sin. 
And that's what he's saying here. It was added because of sin until, he says, the offspring should come. You see how the, the law is this interim? Until, until the offspring, which we've said is Christ, should come. To whom the promise had been made. To whom was the promise made? Paul has just let you know. The promise was primarily not to Abraham, but to Christ. Meaning, of course it was made to Abraham. But it is Christ for whom the promise was made, so that he would come. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, that may sound just a little odd to you. Let me just remind you that in Deuteronomy 33, Moses is talking about his meeting with God at Mount Sinai, and he reminds the people that there was thousands of angels, multitudes of angels there during the bringing of the law, during that ministration. And that's what it's speaking to here, through angels by an intermediary. The point being that Moses was there with the angels. Moses is the intermediary, and the angels is there, are there with Moses, and that's who's bringing the law. In other words, this is not strictly God speaking to the people, but Moses carrying the law to the people as an intermediary. And then it's asked in verse 21. Again, the question you may ask, well, okay, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? If the law is lesser, if, if, if the promise is greater, primary and chron- chronology, it came before, more important, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? And Paul, of course, answers, certainly not. By no means. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. You see, life is one of the objectives here. The law was given for sin in anticipation of life. But the law could not bring life. And that brings us back to the beginning of chapter 3, When Paul is explaining, oh, you foolish Galatians, have you now made the law your hope? Is that where you're seeking your security? By having enough constraints and rules that people will do good, that you will do good? Well, Paul has a response to that. Verse 22, the scripture imprisoned everything. (laughs) That may sound a little odd. The scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. What does he mean? Well, in verses 23 to 25, he's going to explain the imprisonment. Why do we put people in custody? Well, because they seem to have broken a law, so we take them into custody so that they can't do any more damage and hurt to other people while they're in custody, or at least they can, they're confined within their jail cell, perhaps, so they're limited in how much damage and hurt they can do while in custody. But also to inform them that what they, the, the thing they're being accused of is wrong, and what they probably did is wrong, and so we're informing them. But also so they can gain hope. In other words, the contrast between being in custody in a jail cell or in house arrest or in a prison is that you hope to be released. And if 
you were arrested on the street and they said, uh, I'm arresting you for a bank robbery, have a nice day, <laughs> you wouldn't appreciate that what you'd done was really wrong, and you wouldn't appreciate that having been adjudicated from that, you've now been released. And so he's saying that Scripture clarifies the law and in that sense imprisons everything under sin because now you get to see how sin has imprisoned you, how sin has imprisoned your friends, how they are stuck, and how they need a Savior. And that's where he takes us to the fourth part, the inheritance. Verse 26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of of God through faith. Remember, he started talking about family, Abraham. And now he's saying, you're not just sons of Abraham, but in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Not because you're sons of Abraham, but through your faith. You see, when he's talking about the imprisonment in verse 24, he says the law was our guardian. The word is pedagogue in Greek. Pedagogue literally means child leader, the one who leads children, just like Marianne was doing earlier, moving them around. The pedagogue was a slave who was responsible for the minor children of a wealthy person and would take him and lead him to school. He wouldn't teach him at school. He would just lead him to school. He was a slave, and he would sort of attend to him until he was age of maturity, And that pedagogue is what we're talking about here. He's a guardian in that sense. He's keeping an eye on him until he's mature. So the law served as a guardian to whom? To us. In this uh, imprisonment section, all the pronouns are plural. We, our, we, we. He's talking about the Jews. Talking about those who knew the law. They had the law as a guardian until Christ came. But now, in verse 25, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We're free. You've been freed. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. That's plural. All those who believe. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. I should note that here he's not suggesting that baptism is perfectly synonymous with regeneration. He's not saying if you've been baptized, then you're saved. He's saying, remember Abraham? Remember that covenant in Genesis 17? What was the feature of that covenant that identified people? It was circumcision. And now it's baptism that brings you into that faith. But it's not because you're participating in the sign of Abraham which would now be baptism, but because you're participating in the sign of Christ that you're putting on Christ. And if the Spirit works, you are, in fact, in Christ. In fact, you can see these verses, 26 through 29, are sort of like a liturgy, like like what Jonathan would say during a baptism. He gets Westland up here, and he's baptizing her, and he looks at you all, and he says this, "'For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith.'" For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Then he looks down lovingly at Westerlin and he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one. We are all one in Christ through this baptism. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. 
In other words, if you really are Christ, not just baptized, you really are. It's a beautiful passage, right? He talks about the promise given to Abraham, the law given to Moses, the imprisonment of the people before Christ returned, and now this inheritance. What is that inheritance, by the way? Well, we said that the promises to Abraham were land, descendants, and a relationship. You know, if, you, if you've studied your Westminster Confession, if you've delved into the Shorter Catechism, you would read questions 36 to 37, and these would be some of the benefits you would receive, you, you would read. I can't read them all because they're just too many. What are the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification, assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, increase of grace, perseverance therein, perfect in holiness, pass into glory, rest in their graves, raised up in glory, acknowledged and acquitted, made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God. That's the inheritance. You are descendants of Abraham if you have received Christ. And you are part of that family. And that promise is irrevocable. The law doesn't get in the way of it. Your failing to follow the law doesn't get in the way of it. Of course, your failing to follow the law is a reason for you to ask for forgiveness. So what is this... What does this imply for us? You have friends, right? You have friends. Some of those friends do not know Jesus Christ. And they are imprisoned. They may not know Moses' law, or they might. Everyone pretty much knows of the Ten Commandments. Even if they're busy trying to get them removed from schools and courthouses, they still know what they are. Well, this is what you can say to your friend. If you are set free by faith, you are free. You're free. And in fact, that's what I would say to you today. If you're imprisoned by sin, if you wake up in the middle of the night, you are set free by faith. And when you're set free by faith, You are free. Trust in God's irrevocable promise. Trust in his irrevocable promise. He's promised you land, descendants, and a relationship. You know, there's there's an ugly word, recidivism. (laughs) That's when they let you out of prison and you do something and get back in prison. It's the rate at which people do that. Don't be a recidivist. Oh, you foolish Galatians. You know the law cannot save, and you know faith has set you free. Don't revert to trusting in the law. If you look to the law to guard, then you are still imprisoned. But if you look to Christ in faith, you are free. We'll read of that in Galatians 5. Here's a second point. If you are in Christ, you are an heir. If you are in Christ, you are an heir. You may not have rich parents. You may not have much to receive in this life 
as an inheritance, but in Christ you have the blessings I've just read to you in this life, in death, and in resurrection. You are an heir. So receive his inheritance, the promised spirit. In fact, that's actually what Paul's been talking about this whole time. If we'd simply read verse 14, the verse very right before, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that means to everyone who's not Jewish, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is what Paul's been focusing on, the Spirit. So you are an heir, and if you are an heir, let me say this, don't live like an orphan. If you don't reach out to the world, you are still impoverished. You're still poor. He promised you the earth and descendants and a relationship. Look forward and find how you can vanquish sin on earth by reaching out to those around you, taking the earth, your inheritance, taking descendants, taking a relationship. And lastly, if we are in union with Christ, we are all one. The last part of this uh, passage is all plural and talking about one. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. What does he say right before that? For you are all one. There is no male and female. There's neither slave nor free, neither Jew nor Greek. By the way, that was a popular Jewish prayer 2,000 years ago. Men would wake up in the morning and pray this. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not a Gentile. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not a slave. And thank you all that I'm not a woman. It's interesting that baptism replaced circumcision. Baptism is for all. Abraham's descendants were marked by baptism in Christ. So if you're in union with Christ, you are all one. So therefore what? Be led by love. Be led by love. It's faith that got you here. It's the love of Christ. It's God's grace. So recognize how believers around you might still be in prison and recognize that those outside of Christ depend on their prison walls. Someone in jail often enjoys the security. And so I say this, when you're offended by someone, bring Christ. Bring Christ. If you're set free, by faith you are free. If you are in Christ, you are an heir. And if you're in union with Christ, we are all one. Let's pray. Oh, great Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for this word that you have preserved for us for 2,000 years. We know that Paul was speaking to the Galatians, but we also know that he is speaking to us today, that you, your word, without even an intermediary, your word with your spirit acting in us are speaking to us, Lord. Let us see the loving inheritance you've given us through faith, through your Son, and let us rejoice. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.